Good morning, Team Crew Lab community. Welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer of the Crew Center. Here is your host, and uh, we welcome back Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia subject matter expert, to catch us up on uh, on what's been going on in the various dimensions of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, so Yuval, welcome back. Good to see you. Um, for those, uh, we, we just had a great discussion about what's on his sweatshirt, so uh, we might post, a, post some uh, some links about it in the show notes for those who are really interested in going down the rabbit hole, going down the rabbit hole of, uh, of Soviet era comedy and time travel. Um, but we won't spend too much time on that. So, um, you're all welcome. And as we were uh, talking about here initially, I think we're first thing we're going to look at is what the military situation is on the ground in Ukraine, especially around Kherson, which has been in, in the headlines, although, um, sort of movement of the, the lines themselves on the battlefield has not been um, quite as dynamic. Um, anyway, if you want to get sure. underway with us there. So I think in terms of, uh, you know, moving forward, we'll cover the military situation, then shift into uh, domestic repercussions of basically the last couple of weeks of news, uh, including the imposition of martial law and uh, mobilization. Um, move on to Putin's last Valdai speech, which um, uh, I, I did break out in hives just like a little bit, uh, even just reading it. Uh, and then we'll think about what are the international diplomatic consequences thereof. So in the, the military balance over the last number of weeks, there has not been as much movement. Uh, there's been a lot of rumors uh, just in the last uh, overnight, last couple of hours, that in the Kharkiv, in the sort of the northern part of the front line, uh, there have been uh, Ukrainian breakthroughs uh, towards Svatove. Uh, and that would uh, suggest that if basically the lines are collapsing further and further in the north, um, Svatove is most important as a railway uh, hub. Uh, and the Russians, as we've talked about for the last eight, nine months, are still fairly dependent on um, railway logistics for getting um, you know, needed items to the front lines. So if the Ukrainians were to capture that or to put that basically out of play in whatever way, um, that would help at least in the northern part of the front lines, return the conflict to something that more resembles uh, the pre-war um, the pre-war lines between the two sides. And obviously, if the Ukrainians are moving, they're going to keep moving. What we've seen in Kherson, which has been a uh, subject of great, con great concern or great movement over the last number of weeks, uh, there have been Ukrainian nibbles here and there uh, at various settlements. But as of right now, uh, the city of Kherson on the uh, right bank, which is, uh, for our perspective, uh, the western part. And one thing to just to remind viewers, sometimes they'll hear right bank, left bank. The, the Dnieper River flows south. So the right bank is west. The left bank is east, um, just in that regard. We the Russians are still control of the city on the right bank. Uh, but what we have observed in the last number of weeks is um, the withdrawal of civilian uh, occupation officials. We have seen the Kherson region and Kherson city uh, occupation officials, like the Russia appointed ones, uh, talking about like making direct video appeals to Putin and to the Ministry of Defense for assistance in evacuation uh, into Russia and financial assistance for those who get to Russia. Uh, and they have been telling uh, the citizens of uh, Kherson, you know, ostensibly the ones who have been pro-Russia or have been assisting uh, the Russian military or the civilian occupation officials uh, to leave. Um, that, you know, you know, in the same way that like Nazi officials were telling their local allies when the Red Army was coming in 44, 45, uh, you need to get to Germany to assure your personal safety. Uh, that's the sort of appeals that we've been seeing um, from Kherson regional and Kherson city officials in recent weeks. We've also observed the general looting of Kherson. Um, and in particular, one of the more interesting things is that the occupation officials have, and the Russian army have taken uh, fire engines, ambulances, uh, a lot of the sort of specialized equipment that modern cities have. So what could this possibly mean? Um, taking all the stuff that's worth taking, people and equipment. Uh, one, one variant is it would make it easier for the Russian troops to defend it without having to be worried as much 
about uh, collateral damage. That said, uh, the, and so the reason that Kherson is really important is that this was the biggest city that was that fell to Russian hands at the beginning of the conflict. Um, this, as you know, viewers or listeners might recall, was one of the reasons that uh, Zelensky fired his internal uh, security services chief uh, for not predicting or being able to inform that Kherson had been taken over by essentially double agents or people who were willing to work for Russia. Kherson fell without fighting. And so that indicates that the Russians had cultivated local officials uh, to switch sides when the conflict came. So Kherson at this point is still in really good shape, like physically speaking, like as just infrastructure. We've also seen um, not just in Russia's historical wars of, you know, Afghanistan in the 1980s, uh, Syria uh, 2015 onwards, uh, Ukraine over this year, Russians, when the Russians fight, they don't really care about civilian uh, collateral damage. They don't care about damage to uh, cities, like actual infrastructure damage. So what this might mean is, one, they want to be able to defend Kherson as the jewel of, uh, you know, the war itself, like the biggest thing that they captured. It's also the capital city of a Russian region as per the latest annexation and accession to the Russian Federation. Uh, but it also could mean that once they remove everything of value, they'll try to hold on to it for as long as possible, but then basically treat Kherson in the same way that they treated Mariupol. It would make no military sense, but it would be much more consistent with destroying things that other people like just so that other people can't have it. And that might be a way of just destroying things on the way out so as to make, in essence, the value of what Ukraine recaptures that much less. So in that regard, we've also heard over the last number of weeks um, suggestions from the Ukrainian side that the uh, dam at Nova Hakova, which is basically spanning uh, the Dnieper River, which controls water flow um, out to the sea, that the Russians are going to destroy that dam on the way out. There are roughly 80 settlements, including Kherson, uh, downstream from that. And basically the, the military point would just be to slow the Ukrainian advances. But it also have the effect of just destroying things for the sake that the other side can't have it if the Russians can't have it either. And that is, and so the Ukrainians have been talking about this. Um, Western sources have basically been reporting on it, but we haven't seen Western officials taking the damn, uh, the damn threat, I guess you could call it, uh, as seriously as uh, basically the nuclear threats that we can talk about in just a minute. But I think that's roughly where we are in terms of the fighting in the North uh, seems to still, be, is still going on. The fighting in the South seems to be stalled, but we could see some pretty dramatic movements in the next couple of weeks as the Russians basically make whatever decision of stay or leave uh, as they wish. And then from that point onwards, we'll then see whether the Ukrainians open up, in essence, a third uh, third battle vector, uh, basically in between uh, Kharkiv region and Kherson uh, region, you know, through Zaporizhia region into Militopol, Militopol and uh, Mariupol, which would then have the effect of cutting uh, the Russian land bridge, Russian uh, land holdings on the west side of the Sea of Azov in half, which would then make um, the supply of Crimea and Kherson that much more difficult. And that's basically where we've been over the last couple of weeks and what we're probably going to see over the next couple. So in, in turn, I guess, kind of indeterminate, I guess, at this point as to whether, you know, Russia is really going to try and make a stand around Kherson or whether... Um, as you say, they're just going to like grab everything that's not nailed down and get out. What is we've also talked about the uh, sort of the linkages across the river into that region, you know, particularly to the bridges, which have been a repeated target of Ukrainian attacks, you know, for for very specific reasons to disrupt movement in and out. What do we what do we know right now about, you know, even if if they were Russia wanted to do a sort of deliberate withdrawal, what is the capacity over the river right now for them to accomplish that? Uh, at this point, they, they've spent a lot of energy over the last number of weeks, weeks, maybe last two, three months. Um, the Ukrainians have gone after 
the Antonovsky Bridge, which is one of the big ones, and and the bridge across Nova Hakova as well. Um, so a lot of the big bridges are no longer usable for heavy transport. Uh, so the Russians have put a lot of energy into constructing pontoon bridges, uh, inclusive of pontoon bridges uh, with basically like, uh, you know, metal on top of them, you know, some combination of iron and steel so as to provide for a heavier transport. The Russians construct them, the Ukrainians go after them. Uh, the Ukrainians, uh, once it became clear that the, that the Russians were taking a lot of things with them, uh, the Ukrainians slow down in the bombing of those pontoon bridges, um, anticipating or sort of assessing that the Russians are leaving. And so there is some balance, I'm guessing, within the Ukrainian military leadership. How much do you want them? How much do you want the Russians to leave versus how much do you want them to just be uh, kettled and trapped in Kherson so that you basically destroy as much of the enemy as possible? But you also raise the costs of basically recapturing Kherson city and certainly raise the possibility of Kherson city um, looking more like Mariupol than not. And so that's the sort of trade offs that, you know, we're not privy to, but that's what it seems that the, that the Ukrainians are doing is trying to figure out what's the right balance between letting the Russians take their stuff and people across these um, basically armored pontoon bridges or or basically just trying to kill as many people and destroy as much stuff as possible. And, and that that's that's a Ukrainian decision. Yeah, no, and that's uh you know not not to get into doctrine, you know, but that's kind of that's the horns of the dilemma on the friendly side. Um yeah. yeah. And I know and I I'm I'm you know on the one hand I'm definitely confident the last thing they want is more, you know, liberating piles of rubble if they don't have to. Um, although, you know, any intact Russian forces that make it across, you may have to face again at some point when they've had a chance to recover. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a hard decision. The, and just sort of like, I guess the last thing on this, you know, let's harken back to what was like Ukraine's operational success here is that they kept talking about the Kherson offensive to, and this is something that we, we talked about previously, um, they kept talking up the Kherson offensive in order to draw Russian forces south from Kharkiv. Once the Russian forces were in Kharkiv, or from Kharkiv into Kherson, you know, from north to south, and that's when the Ukrainians did the surprise counteroffensive in the north across Kharkiv region, where the Russians were basically uh, undermanned. So the successes we saw in the north um, were because those Russian forces had gone south. Those are the forces that we're talking about. The ones that basically came from north to south, and now the decision has to be on both sides: stay, go, and in what what fashion. Okay, um, so that's uh, I guess that kind of gets us up to where we are on the military, sort of the yeah the the front line situation. Um, I think the next thing we wanted to hit was what's going on in sort of the more domestic side, um, both within Russia as well as you know the the newly annexed territories that they. Um, don't fully control, but are yet uh, somehow part of Russia. Um, now, one of the things that was a, uh, I think it happened a couple of days after we did the last rabbit hole episode was the imposition of martial law on some some of the, well, I think it was on all of the occupied territories or the annexed territories, but also is in some of the, the westernmost Russian provinces. Is that correct? Yeah, and Western Russia as well. Um, so, yes, so martial law, uh, lots of things can happen under martial law. Um, in the annexed territory, this is the forcible conscription. Um, and given that I am not a professional sailor or Marine, uh, Ian, can you tell me, am I allowed to use the word press gang if we're talking about people on land? Uh, can people be I, press gang onto service if they're not going onto a ship? I, I think in, in the strictly historical sense, you, you could, because that was, that, that was a, a method, um, that was largely used um, by the Navy, uh, you know, or, or older navies. But uh, it's, it's more it's more a description of a form of conscription, <laughs> um, highly involved, like conscription is involuntary, you know, on any day. But in, you know, sort of our more modern systems, like you sort of at least know that you're eligible, whereas press gangs back in the um, 
you know, late, you know, 18 or 18th, 17th, you know, 19th centuries was, yeah, basically, you know, recruiting parties from the ship would go around and find, you know, drunkards, thieves or whatever, or people who couldn't really protect themselves and just like overwhelm them by numbers and drag them off to the ship. And hey, you're part of the crew now. Congratulations. Um, I, yeah, I, th I think it's still a, it's a fair description of it's a it's a recruiting technique. So as a recruiting technique, I, with your permission, I, I think we can say that what the Russians are doing in occupied territories to a great, to a great extent, uh, little less in Russia, but effectively all over the entire country is press ganging able-bodied men into service uh, against uh, basically the Ukrainian adversary. And in that regard, one thing that we've seen is, or one sort of question that is raised from that is, is it a good idea to effectively kidnap people to then give them like weaponry? Um, in terms of the mobilization, uh, President Putin, Secretary of Defense, uh, or Minister of Defense, uh, Sergei Shoigu, called it a partial mobilization and said that 300,000 would be mobilized. Recently, there was a um, an estimate done by um, some economists who published an article in one of the Russian opposition media outlets that had an estimate of 500,000 or roughly 500,000 uh, people who have been mobilized in Russia. And we'll get to sort of the Ukrainians in just a second. Their identification strategy of how they came up with this number was a little interesting because what they did is they they found obviously publicly available data on like the Russian census, like how many people live in each region, but also publicly available information was uh, how many marriages are there on any given day in Russia? Again, sort of generic, publicly available, um, you know, vital health statistics, as it were. So what they did was they noticed. Usually in Russia, it takes one month from basically registering your marriage with like the local office that does that sort of thing to actually being able to be married. Ostensibly a cooling off period. Uh, you know, there's no Las Vegas style. So what? One of the things of the mobilization, one of like its aspects, like once there is mobilization, martial law, um, or mobilization, I should say, is that the one month waiting period is waived. And obviously, ostensibly, if people are being mobilized, they can get married more or less on the spot. And so that if they don't return, their uh, newly minted uh, and very fresh widow is able to get the monetary benefits from. Um, their death or disfigurement or whatever else, sort of normal stuff that happens. So what the authors of this article did is to observe, since marriages are publicly reported data, what is the spike in basically marriages once the mobilization was announced? And so from there, what is the basically the difference between normal marriages and excess marriages? Knowing the census, they were able to come up with a figure of you know, estimating how many people in each region wanted to basically define the relationship before they were going, use that as how many people are in a relationship and not yet ready to get married as just a total subset of men within a region, given the age, given the normal numbers of how often people get married. And from that, they extrapolated to, they got, there's 86 regions in Russia, or 83 regions in Russia and three special like cities like uh, Sevastopol, Moscow, St. Petersburg. So they had data for about 50, 55 regions, took it to the rest of the country and um, were able to come up with an estimate that the partial mobilization was 492,000. And so their view was there's roughly a half million people who just went into armed services. Then looking at the population like booms, and all the countries where Russians can still go, as well as like places where Russians uh, were able to get visas from the population waves of February, uh, you know, right when the war was starting, June when the school year in Russia ended, and from the mobilization uh, over the last couple of weeks to estimate that there have been somewhere between half million to 750,000 people who have also left Russia, um, but you know, not to the army, to then assess, there might be a million and beyond of individuals who are no longer part of the workforce in Russia. This is an economic hit because 
this is, you know, the, the most economically like uh, vital people in the entire country, given like their age. And so that helped uh, motivate to a certain extent martial law, because martial law means the government gets to, in effect, temporarily nationalize economic activity. They can basically, um, and again, I've been reading a lot of history on like the Napoleonic era and basically like the, like those wars. Um, can I use the word dragoon when it comes to workers in a civilian enterprise uh, being forced to work for the government? You know, there there was actually recently a Twitter thread on the origin and the nature of the word dragoon, um, both as a technique and as a uh, a type of soldier. And I totally didn't read it, so I can't I can't yeah. say one way or the other. So I'll I'll allow it. Just go ahead. Okay. Um, usually I'd use these words with abandon, but given like that our viewers and listeners actually know the difference, I, I want to have like that much more humility. Um, but what the main effect of the the martial law is for Western Russia is that economic activity can be devoted to the war effort directly. And so this gives the government as well as government contractors and government contractors are not like how they work here in the US, which, you know, there's some sort of contracting process. This is, you know, those either agencies or departments or large enterprises, which are directly connected to the Kremlin, to Putin, they can take things from the regular economy that they need without having to go through the usual structures of Russian um, labor law. And so this is going to be, as we're speaking, are we going to see, you know, like the devotion of civilian factories to military equipment as it was in World War II? Like maybe, maybe not. But what we are going to see is this permits government insiders and basically regime loyalists and supporters to engage in basically economic warfare against their rivals. The closer you are to Putin, the more you're able to take the stuff of others under the guise of it's for the war effort. So we're seeing because Russia's economy is not doing well, because you know the Russian government wants to save its oil and gas money, that means we're seeing a scramble for resources basically at, those le at, at the levels underneath that within the economy. And so this is the struggle of all against all under the guise of preparing the state for um, indefinite military uh, conflict. And obviously, like, uh, what, what are we seeing in terms of the mobilization? This is, as we've talked about before, this is the first social media smartphone enabled conflict in which we're able to view the front lines every single day around the clock. So there have been just scores of videos of basically mobilized people who are either like still at their training base and just filming the decrepit conditions that they're in complaining about no training, um, clearly scared, clearly unprepared, all the way to videos of people who are in the field and who don't have any um, protective equipment, they don't have weapons, they don't have ammo, they don't have, and the thing that they complain about the most in these videos, which basically is like an SOS message more than anything else, that they're cut off from their commanders and they don't have orders. So they're in a field, in Ukraine without any way to protect themselves or any idea of what to do and without training of how to do it. And so this brings back, you know, very ancient views on, you know, what is the way of war when you do not care about the lives of your soldiers? That, you, that Putin and the people around him are putting men in the field not to do anything but merely to serve as human ground meat just to slow down uh, Ukrainian advances and just to soak up Ukrainian artillery. And the people at the front understand their only purpose there is to die and basically keep the Ukrainians from advancing or, and or winning by that much more. And that is clearly the panic that the people in uh, these, these newly mobilized uh, troops um, are expressing in order to basically break through uh, the informational barriers at home to try to get some support. Yeah, I think you, you described this previously as uh, a casualty intensive mode of warfare. And um, 
you know, I think to us, uh, you know, in the American and Western militaries, it's just a completely alien concept that you would draw people out there and not give them anything and just expect them to use their bodies as speed bumps. Um, you know, like, it, you know, if I want, anyway, um, you know, the, the best way to slow somebody down is to give your people the method to fight back and make that advance incredibly painful um, and slow and maybe make them go somewhere else, but not, not the Putin approach. Uh, I mean, arguably not the Russian approach to warfare for a while. Um, but I, sorry, go ahead. No. And so, I mean, before the war, a lot of people looked at what was Russian doctrine. We've seen over the course of this conflict is the first idea didn't work. And then they're all out of ideas. And so therefore, you know, it's appeared to me, you know, and we've been doing this for like, what, eight, nine months at this point. It's that the, their big ideas, like Putin's big strategic ideas, like has devolved into trying to basically win the next week win the next two weeks and basically the decisions taken to solve the problem right now means that you that he's created a bigger problem for himself a couple weeks down the line and that is the difference between having strategy thinking through your operational concepts to allow people down the line to make the correct tactical decisions versus not and so now we're in a position where this is like early days of so like someone on, on Twitter said, you know, Putin started this war by pretending it's 1945. And, you know, this is like the last stages of liberating uh, occupied land from the Nazis. And the more this war has gone on, uh, the earlier in the war they're actually having to do this. And this is like 1941. You're just basically putting untrained, unprepared people to slow down the adversary's advances. And again the russian phrase for cannon fodder is ground meat and, and yeah that, and that's a very uh that's a very striking visual image um but it, this uh, and it's interesting you sort of describe that travel back in time um you know you'd mentioned uh, i think several several episodes ago maybe midsummer how like the russian you know sort of military structure as a whole was going from like 21st century back to 20th and in some cases 19th in terms of like equipment and how they were supplying, uh, you know, but now their, their manpower model is going backward in that same sense too, you know, from a standing trained professional force to, you know, throwing bodies under tank treads in the hope that the, the bump slows them down a little bit. Um, so I, to the, to the martial law thing. I want to just one more question on, sure. on that before we go on to something else is, um, Martial law is something usually declared when you're at war. Um, and as far as I know, this is still a special military operation, correct? Um, so has, in, in terms of like talking about popping, popping through that information barrier, um, has there been anything on, uh, you know, whether it's the Russian state media or the telegram channels or what have you, that has noted this dichotomy? We're in martial law now, but there's no, there's no war still. There's Are we squaring that circle in any way? There's a great Russian phrase uh, from the 19th century. Umum um, You do not understand Russia with your mind. That's going to be my next sweatshirt, by the way. Um, and in that regard, the it's like, just don't bring up the war. There's a war going on. They cannot admit it's a war because then that puts the entire war by calling it by its name it makes Putin look bad because this was a three-day operation and we're in day, what, 250 at this point, something like that. We are so many months into this special military operation and so far down that the only thing that, again, the reason they don't call it a war, uh, one, it would humiliate Putin, uh, and two, it would then give all the people, you know, bringing up really crazy ideas on like the Russian political talk shows basically that much more ammunition to take the fight to whatever they think is the next level. So we have in a larger sense, everything that comprises of a war, except the word. And the word is basically the last thing holding. Um, I, I would say like in sort of like the Russian political thinking, it's the last thing before understanding that we are in the end days of Putin. And I say that directly because Everyone in Russia knows, like every single talk show that I watch, um, 
they know that this is serious. If they call this a war and basically the Ukrainians win, which they understand is happening. Like they, they do talk about like literally the stuff that's happening on the battlefield. It's not that they're giving false information. They give the basically factual information, but then come up with these outlandish ways to describe, no, 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 we're just retreating to fight from, you know, a stronger, uh, you know, more defensible position. They tell the right, they tell the basically accurate things, but come up with these crazy like uh, interpretations. If they call it a war and the Ukrainians win, how can Putin survive in terms of like the political dissension? Now, an obvious answer that no one also wants to say is that Putin would then engage in coercion and purges to the level that we probably have not seen since Stalin's times. That's the natural conclusion. If you lose a war to maintain power at home, Putin would then need to find the people who are responsible for this debacle. For a fiasco of this size, the number of people responsible will go across the entirety of society. And so Russian society will then become that much more violent. That's the thing that people in Russia intuitively understand. If somebody has to be blamed, then everyone will be blamed. And it's basically people saving their skins that will create, in essence, not just the administrative chaos, but truly violence of people killing each other, um, a lot of people going to jail, all those sorts of things. And that's the core sense of panic that Russian people have gone through many times in their history that Putin wants to avoid. Not that he can't control it, but then his focus has to go from Ukraine war to shoring up basically power at home. And that is a, that's a time and money and blood intensive way of spending your day. And so that to an extent is why do they do all the things that you would do in a war, but not call it, because it then raises the domestic political stakes at home. Yeah, and I can imagine in that, in that, you know, concern about the purges, the, you know, part of the, the potential violence is that, you know, some of those people are not going to just lie down and go quietly, right? Some of those people, especially if they're, if they're in the military or security apparatus, and they're going to be the fall guy. Right. Well, you know what? They have guns and they control people who have guns, too. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I would imagine that the, the chances of very violent, um, you know, internal civil conflict is a very, very real thing. And, you know, certainly something that Russia has seen before as well, although it's it's been been a while. Um, but I imagine that's still in their sort of collective memory. So, so certainly like and so you can think what what deals would Putin have to make? with like, you know, some military commanders versus others, like, don't worry, Ivanov, like you're cool, but it's Petrov who's like at fault and then setting the army at each other, but then also have to make deals with the, basically the people who win those internal conflicts in order to have that military support to, to buttress his rule. Same thing with like the FSB and intelligence services, you know, setting them at each other and going with the winner, but being beholden to that winner. We can also see that there's a lot of like latent ethnic uh, hostilities and antagonism. Those are now like coming back to the fore because there's been mobilization across the country with a heavy emphasis on you know ethnic and poorer regions. Once soldiers start to come back, having experienced something truly horrific, they're going to um, basically not be treated like that twice. We also know that like with Wagner recruiting just prisoners directly. Uh, who's going to be the core of like the next wave of Russian organized crime? Military trained, like prison convicts, like felons who are already open to the idea of preying on the weak and defenseless. And so when we start to have like lots of these things coming together, you can start to see that violence across regions, across social groups, across, you know, institutions, across agencies, that might be a normal state of affairs for some period of time until winners emerge from from basically these battles. And that is the sort of thing that is like very predictable and what Putin and the people around him definitely want to avoid people starting to put into their calculations of what their future looks like. Yeah. And then and, and as you were just, you know, describing that, it's literally like 
across the whole country and across all the levels of society. Um, you know, another horrifying little um, asterisk to that is I don't know if we have seen massive civil disorder and civil war in a nuclear armed country before. I'm, I'm trying to think of a historical analog because there's only, you know, we only have a few decades of that and I can't think of one. So that that's another, you know, future possible timeline that is uh, not pleasant to consider. Um, yeah. Because I was trying to think what was the 1990s, at least in the 1990s within Russia, there were certainly like civil disorder from moments to moments, uh, the breakdown of just like the government, but the army was in control of its nuclear weapons. And there were like ethnic conflicts within Russia and obviously like the Russia-Chechnya war, um, which, you know, secessionist uh, conflict. But the military at the top levels was stable from Soviet times to Russian times, you know, the same people. There were no large scale purges or illustration there. And there were conflicts outside of former outside of Russia within former Soviet Union, but not in places where there were nuclear weapons. So this would be fairly novel um, unless we're, you know, just not thinking of some con, you know, some aspect of, uh, or definitely like how maybe some political scientists would code what happened in like Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan type things. Yeah. Uh, like the, like Pakistan was sort of the, 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 you know, the only other thing I could sort of think of, and I, I don't think has ever experienced the, the potential like geographic and cross strata um potential disorder of you know of like a top low like a purge that you know putin potentially undertakes if if things continue to go very badly i mean it's pakistan has always been a very it's always been on a knife edge you know in terms of the the control of its leadership and the stability of its um you know its political situation but i i don't think it's ever been on such a knife edge that there were serious concerns about you know what was going to happen with its uh with its nuclear weapons and also they just don't have as many as russia like not you know we're not even yeah. talking the same you know same categories um you know i mean you know a nuclear weapon that goes astray is definitely you know bad but russia has lots and lots and lots of them uh lots of them um it's, so I think something like 6500 and we have something like 5300 those may not be exact but i think that and everyone else is like uh like you're talking you know like you know one like onesies and twosies um uh you know and, and unless you're you know we're talking about some of the other you know western countries that have had nuclear programs but um but sort of outside of that yeah, you're not talking large numbers of warheads and there's nothing that compares to the russian stockpile um so i actually so i guess we could uh we can maybe get to the the nuclear yeah. piece here in a second um I think there there was an opportunity to make a, a John Cleese joke about not talking about the war, but I think that moment has gone. So yeah. um, we'll move I, on. To, we'll move on to the next thing. So um, another discussion point we have is that um, Putin gave a speech. I think it was yesterday, um, and uh, I think it's it was to a discussion forum. I the name of it I'm not going to try and pronounce, but if you want to like give what's that? Yeah, it's called the Valdai. Uh, international uh, forum, I believe, but Valdai is like uh, a place. So like there's a place Valdai and every single year, the Russian president basically hosts foreign um, international relations, foreign, foreign policy experts, basically, you know, academic elites uh, from the, from different parts of the world, you know, from across the world to basically just like listen to him, you know, in first person. And, and I'm sure that's a very pleasant experience for all the guests who were brought there. Um, but so what, what did he talk about in this recent one that he gave? Um, are there any, I know you, we, we mentioned there, there's sort of some consistency in the talking points that he goes out, but was there anything that any, any little nuggets that jumped out at this one that, you know, are, are topics worth watching in the future or was, is he just reading from the same script again? Right. So for a lot of people who go, um, you know, they get to feel like, oh, I listen to the Russian president, um, you know, and uh, I have not gone because uh, I don't think I'm, uh, let's say, uh, famous enough uh, for that sort of thing. Um, but like 
the giants of like let's say russia studies in uh you know in academia have gone and their descriptions of, like what it's like in person is first of all you get to meet the president like the president of russia and he only makes basically he only interacts with the public he doesn't really interact with the public like the people writ large he only does that if there's an election coming up so for so to actually see this man in person he only even makes speeches to like his parliament or to like various governmental bodies no more than like once twice a year so first of all there's the feeling oh my god i'm doing something very very special here two like when you go there it is the full whining and dining it's like you are definitely treated like a very important person and so then you are in you know psychologically you've been framed to accept whatever he says as like true right correct etc um so like that's just basically like the room where he where he's talking the views and again for viewers listeners you could read um or watch with subtitles this particular speech and you're pretty good on basically most Putin's speeches they're all roughly the same at this point they're just more or less tailored to the audience um in terms of using either metaphors or or language that that audience um, is already familiar with. But in effect, first there is the listing of the grievances. Russia's core grievance or Putin's core grievance is that the United States is bad. Like that's like from first principles, we operate that the United States is bad. Now, why is the United States bad? The international order from Putin's perspective should have started in 1989 with the conclusion of the Cold War when obviously like George H.W. Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev walked away from their meetings in Malta, December, 1989, thinking that they were going to negotiate amongst the two countries, what are the rules of the road? How do the US and uh, USSR interact with each other? How do they reshape um, the international security architecture, the European security architecture? How do they jointly govern international affairs? Soviet Union exists. Red Army is big and strong, lots of nuclear weapons. That's the, the international system that Putin wishes that he inherited. The, the international system that he inherited from Yeltsin and which Yeltsin basically helped speed along was that the Soviet Union collapsed, the US increased its power uh, at Russia's expense, every single country in between Russia and West Germany uh, wanted to become part of the European Union and or NATO, with the uh, glorious exception of Belarus, uh, which basically has a sort of a mini Putin there too, and that that's what's unfair. And so that's America's original sin, was not upholding its 1989 spirit to take advantage of the 1991 moment. So therefore, everything that, that America has done since is to take advantage of that period and to institute unipolarity, to expand, um, and then to basically export its values onto everyone else in the world. So America is unjust. It uh, has done things that are um, immoral, illegal, etc. And that its worst sort of thing that it does is not just be powerful, but that it uses its culture and values to brainwash people of the non-West into thinking the West is right, true, and correct. And so he spoke at length on um, beyond the sort of like general appeal to the global South that, you know, what we need is less America in the world. We need to create multipolarity. And, you know, Russia, just as it so happens, is one of the poles of the, you know, the multipolar world. But he also had this long discussion on uh, there was Dostoevsky and other giants of like Russian literature talking about cancel culture and talking about the values of the West. And we do not have the time and I do not have the insanity to go through like Dostoevsky's um, body of work. But one of the core things, one of the core themes of Dostoevsky's body of work is what is man's responsibility to man, to society, and to God? And so one of his famous characters, uh, Raskolnikov, kills an old lady but why does he kill an old lady because he believes that he can do better and more in this world 
than the old lady. Also happens to be his landlady, but like, you know, we'll leave the economic concerns to the side. But because he can do more than her, removing her from the world and having more of him in the world is basically the sacrifice both she and he need to make. But, and so for the betterment of society, for the betterment of themselves, and for basically the obedience to God in order to have, in essence, a more fair, right, and just world by removing those who are weak and promoting those who are strong and better able to do something. Of course, he gets punished. That's the transition that Putin made to Western cancel culture. That you do the things that are right, and then basically all those ninnies and wussies in the West will then, you know, circle the wagons and uh, attack you for being yourself. Again, I die a little on the inside every time I have to go over this, but that's where we are as a uh, leader of a nuclear armed nation. And so what he was doing in that is trying to appeal to all of those on an ideological basis. If you do not like Western culture, if you do not like Western values, then you're the person who's right. And if you're the person who's right, you know, in essence, the West is wrong. That provides the ideological basis for organizing international affairs outside of the United States and its partners and allies. And that was his Global South uh, appeal. And that then turns into what does Putin talk about when he talks about Ukraine? He doesn't talk about Ukraine in terms of like, you know, its borders, like a physical place. And this is how we can get insight into his views on war termination. His problem with Ukraine is not its borders. The, the parts that he's annexed and is going to try to hold on to, he's going to try to get more and more. But it doesn't matter, in a sense, the, the actual borders of Russia, Ukraine. Like, obviously, in like a logistical sense, in an operational sense, it does. But the thing that offends Putin is not Ukraine as its borders, but Ukraine as its idea that it is governed, organized, and motivated to be part of that West. And that when he views Ukraine as basically a garrison state or frontier state of the West, that's essentially the motivation here. What Ukraine should be, according to Putin, is the frontier state for Russia. That if there is to be a buffer zone, buffers are protecting one side or the other, and it should be protecting Russia. And so when we then think about what is going to make Putin like happy with the conflict, with the resolution of this conflict and war termination, it's only the destruction of Ukraine as basically a post-Maidan country. What he and so therefore, when we then think about what are you know peace negotiations that Putin wants, any of the peace negotiations that Putin would seriously consider are only things to freeze the existing uh, territorial vision in place to then give him the and Russia the time to regroup and reconstitute its forces for another um, basically another phase of the conflict. The only negotiation that he would take seriously is something that has that and that he does with the American president because he doesn't want the humiliation of having to deal with the Ukrainian president as an equal. And those are basically the big views from the speech. Grievances and resentment, appeal to the global south, and the articulation of a world in which you don't have to apologize for yourself. Yeah, well, I think the uh, that that last point, like the the world he's looking at, you know, versus the world, you know, the West is kind of is kind of looking at as you just you know we described it, but as we talked about this before recording, is you know there's just there's a massive gulf between the two, you know, whereas you know we on on the you know the for Ukraine it's it's a it's a fight for survival, like that's 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 as basic as it is, um, you know, but on the Western side we're looking at this as a a you know a regional conflict to which we're contributing support but it's a regional conflict nonetheless confined to certain things you know for russia it it's not maybe it's not existential but it's global it's a it's a this is a clash of of global viewpoints and perspectives and um yeah in terms of war termination like understanding that gap um 
don't know how you you come to a war termination that you know not not just as just right you know as is just for all sides but um you know has any realistic um possibility of not brewing into another conflict years down the line um you know don't know how you get there from here you can call it a clash of civilizations i i didn't want to um Uh, for, for those who are listening and not watching the youtube um please note that uh major ian brown of the united states marine corps uh just died a little uh when i made a huntington reference um but in that regard uh what it's exactly as you put it russia's viewpoint is this is a global contest with local fighting that has regional implications the local fighting between russia and ukraine shapes europe which basically shapes how does the united states interact with Russia as fellow great powers. And the perspective from, as you put it, like the perspective from basically everyone else in the world is this is a local war that has regional implications, but this is not a global contest. Like the US, NATO, other countries are not fighting in this war. And that's the core difference. Russia's fighting for a very different world and everyone else views Ukraine as fighting for its survival. You know, those are, they're just mutually incompatible perspectives. And, um, you know, it'd be, as you said, you know, at best you, you freeze it and people, I mean, maybe I think the challenge is by freezing it, it gives the implication that the conflict is over, which would not, not be the case because, um, until the world changes, you know, or until Putin departs this mortal coil, right. Um, his perspective is not going to change. Um, so yeah. you're only, you're only just, you're only, you know, kicking the can down the road until he decides to, you know, as freezes it long enough to reconstitute, you know, rebuild, you know, maybe retrain his meat grinder um, soldiers and try again. There, there is zero doubt that Putin is willing to wage this war indefinitely that, you know, and this is, you know, we can go sort of like, what are the international diplomatic consequences um, of you know Putin's war? Is that where we start with the idea that war termination, from Putin's perspective, is basically the the disemboweling of Ukraine? Again, the key thing isn't how much territory that Russia takes, um, you know, how much population he can gain to you know cover the losses from the war, from emigration, uh, and so forth. But it's Ukraine as being able to articulate sufficient sovereignty to choose its own foreign and security policies, to choose its own economic policies. That's the core thing. Putin doesn't need to control or like annex literally the entirety of Ukraine. Like even from the beginning of the conflict, it was clear that was not part of the capabilities. But as, but basically removing the current leadership and installing loyalists that I think is like still like a clear Russian like desire that the fighting will continue until the Ukrainians come to their senses. Yeah. I mean, he, he essentially wants, you know, what he's got in Belarus right now. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't occupy or, you know, have, have direct control over every aspect of, you know, life and economy in Belarus, you know, but he has, it's his satellite, you know, to sort of do with as he, as he requires. That's kind of probably the same model he's looking for with Ukraine, as you describe it. And that's so like that's the core difference. What was the Soviet Union and what is imperialism? The Soviet Union is Moscow made decisions for everyone and paid for everyone. That was, by the way, Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, that was his key complaint about the Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union was bad for Russia just as a deal. And that's why he took, you know, Yeltsin with his colleagues from Belarus and Ukraine, taking their countries out of the Soviet Union was in order to stop sharing their resources with the Caucasus and Central Asia, like just at its core. Like that's the, that is the origin story of the Russian Federation, the current state. And so for Putin, as you put it, he wants that same imperial relationship with Ukraine as he has it in Belarus. And if he were to get basically a very different government, a government that is 
now you would think it's impossible because it would require super violence to keep them in power. But at the beginning of the war, if Zelensky had left and, you know, um, Viktor Medvedev uh, had been installed as the president of Ukraine, the war would have stopped immediately. Like that. And so that's, in essence, the reason that the Ukrainians are going to fight on an indefinite basis and why Putin is no longer thinking about how do we defeat Ukrainian forces in the field. That essentially, like that's been revealed that Ukraine has more capabilities and has better morale, all these sorts of things. The costs of defeating them are very, very high, even though the benefits remain the same. And so this is, you know, I, you know, transitioning into like, how does Putin think about war termination is how does he think about basically Western support to Ukraine? We talked earlier in like this series when we had um, Dr. Uh, Rita Konaev on about different sorts of clocks. And the clocks that we put, that we talked about at that time were which one's gonna run out first, Western support for Ukraine or basically the Russian economy. Putin is going Leroy Jenkins on the Russian economy by pursuing policies, or is going all in, I should say, for those who are not online, who's going really like to the max on like Russia's economy by doing things such as um, mobilization, doing things such as having uh, martial law, hundreds of thousands to like, let's say in the low million of people who are basically outside of the labor force because either they're in the army or they're outside the country. So we're going to see the contraction of Russia's economy, not just from basically this exogenous shock to like the labor force, but also the effects of sanctions, um, the, the prohibition of uh, imports of like semiconductors into like microchips into Russia, Russia having to recreate brand new supply chains, the deglobalization of Russia, all of these different things. It's not any one thing is going to collapse the Russian economy, but all of these things happening at once. This is a clear march towards a bad economic place for Russia. So the only thing that Putin can really do in order to get to war termination on favorable terms, to get to negotiations from a position of strength, are to reduce the support that the larger West gives to Ukraine. That is why we see all these nuclear threats coming up, and we can go into whatever level of detail, but like my personal hot take is we are unlikely to see Russia use nuclear weapons because that really does provide Russia with the global contest that it, it claims that it's fighting, but obviously is not. And so if, and this is something that the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan has said, um, President Macron of France has said, um, Josep Borrell, one of the top EU officials has said that the response is not going to be nuclear in response, but it is going to be devastating. And so what does devastating mean? The mind, uh, the mind can expand in many different directions, but one would expect that, you know, attacks on Russian soldiers in the field, attacks on Russian military assets in the field, attacks on basically Russia's Black Sea fleet or Caspian flotilla, truly eroding and corroding Russia's ability to wage war might be the, the response. That would then hasten all of those bad domestic consequences that we were discussing earlier. So again, the threat of nuclear weapons helps shake resolve in a lot of countries because they get back to, you know, conversations that we could have had in, you know, 1950. Is the United States willing to trade uh, Boston for Kiev? Are they willing to trade um, Charlotte for Odessa? And those are the same conversations that were all throughout the Cold War. And what why Russia is bringing them up now is basically try to erode Western support for Ukraine and hopefully having more pro-Russian leaders come to power in various in various countries as their election cycles um, come up. What we've seen at minimum is far right the far right candidate basically fascist supporter at least or fascist. Uh, nostalgia person in Italy come to power. Uh, we've also seen that in Sweden, the um, the very far right, which has its origins in a neo-Nazi movement, is part of the, the coalition that just came to power. But both in Italy and in Sweden, 
there has been no change from the status quo in terms of support for Ukraine. Now, my own hot take is that both the Swedish party, as well as like the uh, Georgia Maloney in Italy have basically recognized that the United States and its basically allies and partners view Ukraine as basically you have two choices. You are on board or basically you're in the pro-Russia camp. And if you're in the pro-Russia camp, that comes with diplomatic, political and economic consequences that you do not want. And so therefore, if your actual goal is let's be anti-immigrant or whatever else in our own countries, support for Putin, support for Russia going against Ukraine is basically just a cost. It's basically the juice is not worth the squeeze. And that is in essence what we're seeing. Russia trying to create dissension. It obviously gets people very hot and bothered but it as yet isn't bearing any fruit. Um, we also know that over the last couple of weeks, uh, the European, the European Union announced uh, that it reached all of its gas storage goals um, ahead of this winter, uh, aided in part by trying to buy up as much gas as possible, but also by um, it's been a relatively warm autumn, so they just haven't needed as much gas. This suggests that Russia, you know, its original intent that the West would prefer a political deal over Ukraine's head that ensures cheap gas forever, that they would prefer that over basically backing Ukraine. They didn't get that, so they used the gas weapon. The gas weapon was not as um, effective as they had hoped, um, creating the conflict in, uh, you know, domestic economic conflict. And obviously they wanted to do this before the G20 summit, which at this point is now about two, two and a half weeks away. Um, they wanted something in place so they could use that opportunity to have a Putin-Biden uh, discussion, you know, meeting of the minds. But uh, Biden's uh, people have indicated that Putin will come. Not, not going to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so hopefully, yeah. We'll, yeah, hopefully we'll see the, the you know, Putin's, uh, you know, federal's, uh, se uh, federal security office is, uh, his basically his secret service versus uh, Biden's secret service. Maybe they can do a bit of judo in the hotel lobby uh, to see uh, if the leaders meet. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, you know, a sharks versus jets dance off um, yeah. kind of thing. And yeah, no, but I think, you know, bringing up the, you know, the various clocks again is it's, you know, we're certainly not through the winter yet. Right. And some of the things you've described in terms of, um, you know, the change in political leadership in Europe, um, not yet impacting support for Ukraine as well as, you know, a, a not as bad as expected gas situation. You know, we've, I, I hate to say, I'm going to say it anyway, winter is coming. It's still coming. Right. Um, and there's a lot of things that can happen in that time frame. Um, you know, but it, it, it could be that, you know, these are the first, the first inklings at least that once again, like Putin's assumptions and calculus have just been badly, badly wrong because, and, and they've, consistently been wrong in how he thinks, you know, individuals or nations are going to respond to what he does. Um, and, you know, I know that one of the other calculus is, hey, U.S. has got an election coming up, too. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the one of the clocks he's watching, you know. But, I, you know, aside from the, the election campaign rhetoric, you know, I think I, I saw some recent polling that there's still very strong majorities in the U.S. in support of continuing to provide, you know, material assistance to Ukraine. And, and I want to say that that polling also included, you know, potentially, you know, bad economic, you know, you know, higher gas prices, what have you um, on on our side, you know, still very strong majorities indicating that they would, you know, continue to support or we should continue to support Ukraine through that. So, you know, again, could be Putin has badly misread, read the misread the field and uh, he's going to find whatever happens in the elections is not going to impact the support. And, you know, then what does he do? I don't know. You know, and he's going to, he's running out of weeks that he, as you said, at the very beginning of this, you know, he's thinking a week at a time, you know, you're going to run out of weeks that you can just like, you know, um, defer certain painful things. Um, and maybe he finds this winter, the, the weeks he thought he had, um, he's run out actually. We'll see. Again, strategic genius. 250 yeah. odd days into a three day uh, special military operation, hoping that basically uh, uh, Russia's mean forces uh, can can do the work that their airborne could not. 
yeah, I, and to, to the strategic genius, those those who are on Twitter who are not following the Darth Putin Twitter account, I would add that to your list because yeah. that's just that's just a you know when you can't when you can't cry you just have to laugh kind of thing. But that's a daily dose of 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 the dichotomy between Putin as a master strategist and the you know the utter ruin that this operation has been for him since day one. Um, it does include lots of poop emojis, so consider yourself warned. <laughs> And I think right. poop emojis are a great place to end for uh, for the episode. Yeah, the, you know, put it, it all on. It is it is the end. We, we've that's the sign that we've culminated. Um, all right, you've all. Well, as always, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'll get this one out here shortly. Enjoy the weekend, and for those in the audience, I've, I've been putting down some things I'm going to put into the show notes here. Um, um, Ivan changes professions is going to be one of them. I was looking up on YouTube as we were talking. There is a YouTube version with English subtitles. So for the benefit of the Teen Krulak audience, I'm going to give you some extra weekend viewing if you want for your family movie night. Um, it is quite funny. So I, it, it's a very, if you enjoy like movies from like the 60s. So it's not like, so it is of its period, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I the little clips I was scrolling through you know, it, it's 60s production values, right? So take that for what it's worth. Um, but I'm also going to throw in, we, we talked about it offline before, but in, uh, and I'm not going to make you rehash, you know, sort of literary analysis of Dostoevsky, because I know my, my own wife would probably keel over with me attempting literary analysis with her background in English and literature as well. But I, I am going to, I think the di there's been a consistent dichotomy between Putin's complaint about, you know, Western values and whatever, you know, label you want to put on it versus, you know, the great, you know, Russian um, values you have. And uh, w one of these dichotomies struck me yesterday, again, on social media, and I'm going to put a link to it. But um, there was Lieutenant Luibov Plaksiuk, and I apologize for mispronunciations, but uh, there are pictures of her posted. She's a lieutenant in the Ukrainian military, first woman to lead a artillery unit of the Ukrainian armed forces. And there are these great photo galleries of her standing on the the annihilated wreckage of Russian vehicles that her artillery unit absolutely smashed, um, you know, and it and I, I think this ties back to some of the, you know, performance military performance downstream of overall culture, right? You know, okay, you want to complain about Western culture, right? Well, you know, Western and Ukrainian model military is downstream of their own culture, and they are turning your vehicles into burn hulks on the battlefield, so. You know, you, you decide which culture is actually going to give you military effectiveness, um, you know, and if the meat grinder is what you want, then, uh, you know, we'll see how long you have meat left to throw into that grinder. Sorry, we didn't end on poop. We ended on something else. Um, so I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done now. So, all right. Again, you, thank you very much, Yuval. And uh, we'll get you here on the next one here shortly. See all you. Right. Bye. Bye. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.